0: Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everyone. Lately, I've been going through the book called The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. And it's been bringing back to mind a question that I don't go over a whole lot, but certainly comes up from time to time, and it is the simple matter of the question of homosexuality, especially as regards the Christian judgment on these issues. And the issue that I have with it is not so much the homosexuality itself, but the Christian understanding, or better yet, misunderstandings around that issue. And I don't mean about homosexuals, I mean about their own beliefs and what the Bible actually says about homosexuality. So, first of all, there is the matter that it seems among Christians to be regarded as a special grade of sin. And while I think on a more subconscious and visceral level, this actually does have a good reason for existing, I'll get to that in a little bit, but... In and of itself, I don't see why this is even tenable. Would we, for example, consider somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction to be damned simply as such? I think there are some Christians who would say so. But then I would retort with, okay, then do you think that somebody who is even tempted to commit adultery... Is damned, or how about somebody who engages engages in homosexual acts versus somebody who engages in adultery? To me, these can simply be considered both sexual perversions, and to put it in a more philosophical way, it is going against the grain of how God designed us to be both physically and socially physically of course, is the homosexual where we go against our sexual design, making love to members of the same sex, or both in some cases. And then, of course, in adultery, we break down the ideals of relationship which God designed us for. Now, as C.S. Lewis rightly points out, just going into a bit of a digression here, as C.S. Lewis points out quite rightly, while many societies throughout history have differed as to how many wives a single man can have, it certainly has not differed in the sense that a man can just grab any woman that he wants. There, there is a reason why rape has been considered wrong and illegal in most societies throughout most of history. And if at very least, I think one of the common reasons is that the man who happens to be the husband of that woman tends to get rather peeved if another man takes her, even in such cases when their relationship was not going very well at the time. But anyways, going back, many Christians seem to think that homosexuality is such a unique level of sin that perhaps maybe in their heart of hearts they think that it's irredeemable, or they think that it is especially corrupting in some sense that is irrecoverable. But again, I would raise the question of whether or not this is also true of adulterers or pedophiles. Can, for example, adulterers and pedophiles, especially repentant, repentant ones, not come to the church? Or ones who are seeking answers and are yet not yet repentant, are they welcome at church? There's plenty of Christians who would not welcome a homosexual, but would welcome an adulterer or a pedophile, especially, again, if they were somewhat repentant. And this is starting to come close to the issue that Christians, I think, really do have with homosexuals, but let's stick with this for a little bit longer. On the one hand, yes, an adulterer or a pedophile, or shall we say somebody who has committed adultery and somebody who has committed pedophilia, may be a great deal less noticeable, whereas somebody who may be trying to appear to be the gender they were born or the sex that they were born, who is still currently struggling with same-sex attraction, may be a little less able to conceal their darker sides, if you will, or conceal whatever it is that they may want to conceal. But on the outset of that, does that not give a certain advantage to the church? Because if somebody is coming with homosexual desires, who wants to try to solve deeper questions about themselves, which may end up helping them with their homosexuality, the fact that their homosexuality is one of the first things that's easy to notice, even if that person is not admitting it right out front, makes an advantage wherein, as an alternative, the adulterer or the pedophile could easily conceal their sin for months, if not years, without even being discovered. And depending on the health and rationality of the people at the church, They may even ignore signs that they can very clearly see of other sorts of sexual perversion, but not so with the homosexual, at least not in many cases. So this lands us into what really is the issue, what brings an extra layer of attention to the homosexual for the Christian or the Christian community, the church in general. And this, I think, is fairly obvious right on the face of it. I don't think, as I've already been arguing, that homosexuality is somehow a worse sin. But homosexuals as a community, unlike other sexually perverse groups, demand in many cases to be identified, to be even appreciated, as if they were on equal footing with another sex, such as male or female, or something like another race, black to white. And this, of course, is additionally offensive to a Christian. I mean, even the very fact that they used the rainbow as their symbol is in many ways, or sorry, could in many ways be seen as an affront to God himself. God used the rainbow in the first place to promise that he would no longer, he would not again, flood the world as he had in the days of Noah. And the rainbow was used as a promise for that. And anybody who wonders about the scientific difficulties of prisms, etc., needs to look a little bit further into the differences that the world may have had if the Christians have it right, and I'm not particularly of one, one opinion or another here, about how different Earth would have been before the Flood and possibly changes having occurred would have allowed for the formation of clouds as we now see them and the prisms that the, for, the clouds form with the sun to form a rainbow. To me, a god who is in charge of the dominoes as well as the founder of the physical reality in which we live could very easily have arranged it so that after the flood... Only then was it possible for rainbows to even appear, and then he uses it as a sign to say, this is my promissory note, I won't do this again. But of course, that's another digression, so let's return. The rainbow is used by the gays, yes, and it may indeed, and I think in some cases literally, be seen as an affront to God saying, hey, we can live the way that we want, and we know you're not going to punish us because you already promised that you wouldn't do that again. But in addition to that, by trying to position themselves as a sort of extra sex or set of sexes, genders at very least, which is their common term, or as something like another race, they're trying to get themselves accepted as natural. In other words, God made us this way, so why would you have anything against us? And Christians who insist that homosexuality is a sin, which I agree with, find this particularly offensive. Because, of course, we tend to think, as Christians, that if we were to accept this as true, then we would have to challenge the, uh, very, uh, the very notion that it is a sin. Now, this is where I think the greatest confusion of modern-day Christian understanding comes in. See, Christians again think that if we were to accept that there is something like a homosexual gene, or a gay gene as they more often call it, then we would have to accept them as essentially natural, God created that way. And I find this very a very odd nervousness. Many people fear to even think this. Yet the same theologians will bring up the idea that we have what is called an old sin nature. And they will argue that this is something that we are born with, and we bear for the entirety of our lives, and we must repent of, and possibly have, in some mysterious sense, removed from us before we reach our conclusion, so that we will be confirmed in heaven. Now, before going into my own issues with that that part of quasi-theology, more philosophy, really, let me just point out that these two notions are essentially parallel. I mean, why would we have any problem whatsoever with the idea that there could be a gay gene, even if it were proven, if we already suspect that we are born with something which is specifically against God, which we must repent of? The Bible does not talk about anything having to do with how we are born when it talks about homosexuality. If you want to go back to Sodom and Gomorrah, or if you want to talk about the Benjamites who wanted to sexually abuse another man, and they themselves were men, when the concubine was uh, sent out instead and they raped her all night until she was dead in the morning. Or how about in the New Testament when Paul talks about homosexual behavior with both men and women, and talks about the fact that they receive in their bodies the penalty for their wrongdoing, probably referring to AIDS. I certainly agree, once again, that these things are wrong, but none of those references make any comment on the idea that any of this could be natural or unnatural. The point is, it shouldn't be. It is a sin it should be repented of. So, let us say that some people are born with a gay gene. So what? We already suppose, many of us as Christians, an old sin nature which we are also born with and essentially inherited from the first Adam. And we must repent of that. How is this different? The Christian response in my mind to these things is, I do not care whether or not this is something you are born with or not born with. If you want to be a part of the church, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be close and intimate with the Lord God of heaven, then you must repent of everything which he says is wrong. Now let me raise another interesting point about these arguments. I still have yet to make this podcast, it might be my very next one, but in the argument between Arminianism and Calvinism, that is the idea of free will over predestination or Calvinism, which is really predeterminism, um, though most people don't use the term, and I think that is a problem within the debate. Anyways, going aside from that if it is to be posited or even proven that there is some sort of sin gene, which I think would have to be proven also if we were really to have a rational view of an old sin nature. In similar matter, if we were to find that there is a gay gene, these would in fact seem at first blush to support Calvinism. Because, of course, the Calvinists believe that God has essentially not only predestined us in a particular direction but he has so formed us so that we will follow that predestination which is where the predeterminism comes in by the way so that we will follow through with the predestination that he has already given us so if we are born with an old sin nature and even what could be called a sin gene as well as some of us being born with a gay gene then again at first blush that would seem to support calvinism however if we look at how the world actually functions, the gauging in particular would be an excellent, excellent argument for Arminianism itself. Why? Because we already know and have seen, and of course the gay and liberal media try very hard to hide the fact, that some people with same-sex attraction have repented and denied it even as they continue to be same-sex attracted later on in their lives. They refuse to behave that way in many cases because they are Christians and they are trying to live as consistent Christians. If this is the case, then it is an enormously good argument for free will. Because in the same sense that an old sin nature being repented of would prove that we can choose against that which we are born with, in like manner, we can choose against a quote, gay gene if that were to be a real thing. So again, on first blush, it appears to be in support of Calvinism, whereas in effect, in actual action and the real world would seem to support the Arminianist argument. Now, I personally am not sold either on the gay gene or on the old sin nature. Take a look at it. If we were to see, for example, that there is an old sin nature gene, some sort of gene that we inherited from Adam from the days of old, then what happens upon repentance? Do we lose the gay... the uh, Sorry sin gene? Is it removed from us? Is it replaced? Now, of course, nobody really talks about a sin gene, but it is really what we are arguing, because what the theologians argue is that through the scripture where Paul writes in the epistles, that in one man all sinned, so also in one man all are redeemed, talking about Adam and then Jesus Christ. Well, if that is the case, and of course we are not fully delivered from our old sin nature until we repent and believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior, then we are, up until that point, carrying something genetically through the line of Adam all the way down to today, which tilts us towards sin. And then this starts to become very difficult to argue. Does God change our genetic structure? Does he alter us in some other way? If that were the case, then why is it that so many people who we believe to be confirmed Christians still struggle with their own sinfulness? Some of them even with same-sex attraction. This all becomes particularly difficult, and it is not specifically pointed out in Scripture. I already mentioned probably the most pivotal scripture arguing or at least so, so said to be arguing towards an old sin nature that in Adam all sinned. And we also have scriptures such as the heart being desperately wicked. I'm driving so I can't exactly look these things up. But it never specifically points out that there is something inborn in human nature that tilts us towards sin specifically as far as I can remember. I would be delighted to hear arguments to the contrary. We do hear that the heart is weak, that the flesh is weak. And I fully accept these things. But I do not believe that they add up to an old sin nature. I do believe that human beings are rebelling against God. And that all of us are tempted to do precisely that. But this idea that we are as tempted towards sin... Uh, sorry, that we are more tempted towards sin than we are enticed towards good, I don't see holds true in reality. And this is one reason why, perhaps, I am a a bit more biased in favor of the idea that the Bible does not, in fact, argue this, which is why I say, if anybody has counter-arguments, I'd be delighted to hear them. But in any case, when it comes to the real world, while we do see that corruption is extremely common, and it also tends to pass itself down. I've talked already many times in this podcast about parental abuse, and also given a nod to the fact that parental abuse has a tendency to reproduce itself in the next generation. There is a great deal of corruption. There is a great deal of temptation towards power and abuse of others, taking advantage of others. Sexual perversion is unfortunately extremely common. But at the same time, when you look at the world, the more honestly you see it and the more fully you see it, the more at least I have realized, the more I have tried to do this, I have realized there are so many people, a mysterious amount of people who not only are doing genuine good, but who seem to almost have been born with a desire to pursue the good. Not that they did it their entire lives, by the way. But in a sense, when they come around to repenting of their past, and trying to work towards genuine good in a consistent way, they almost also see, in retrospect, that that is something they wanted all along. And there are, again, a plethora of people, including some of my own teachers, who are of this particular, verse. sorry, have this particular kind of story. I find it extremely mysterious, and it is, by the way, one of the most difficult parts of reality at which I have seen in the area of arguing for free will, because it becomes a bit hazy around the question of, okay, then when did the free will actually come in? Was it something people are born with? I personally think that it really has to do with the fact that we desire oath. In other words, the temptation for sin and weakness and corruption and sexual perversion and so on is there for all of us. So also the attraction and the love and the goodness and the health of doing good and being virtuous. We are tilted towards both, but the fact of the matter is, as it is aptly said, I can't remember who said it, legitimate pleasure is paid for ahead of time, whereas illegitimate pleasure is paid for after the fact. So what I think this really boils down to is not an old sin nature, but a weakness. What I'm getting at is that we want, in our weakness, to accept the pleasure up front and try to ignore the fact that we're paying costs in the long run. It is less tempting to pay the price up front to do the right thing and then have the long-term benefits I mean, just look at the fact of how much wrong, how many wrong decisions we make in our youth when we still have that energy, that vigor. We want the pleasure when we have, quote, the capacity to enjoy it, and then we reap the repercussions of that later on. It's very few who are willing to take the time and learn and be patient and make the right decisions, such as such as the choice of their spouses from the early stage and possibly reach their mid to late 20s, if not 30s, or even mid-30s before they make a selection so that they are sure that they themselves are living virtuously and their prospective mate is living, living virtuously. And from this issue comes a lot of the false rumors or false ideas that all marriages are really hard work and people don't get along and blah, blah, blah. Why? Because most people fall for the weak choice of making a hasty decision with a desire to quell their loneliness or sate their desire for sexuality, etc. I'm bringing this up simply to try to prove the point that it is much easier for us to make the hasty early decision and pay the price down the road rather than to take our time and grow into wisdom and make the right decisions in the now, which will be difficult. Not just mentioning the time that it takes before we can find that mate, but how difficult it will be to find them and how much we will have to change both before and during the relationship in order to be worthy of it and then reap the amazing, wonderful, life-giving benefits that I have heard of from those who have done this down the road. That, to me, is the real essence of what could be called the, quote, old sin nature. And in my mind, and I'll go through this again when I talk about uh, predestination and free will, Arminianism and Calvinism, I think this is the real, th- this is the actual reality behind what we see in the story arcs of individual human beings. Everybody, regardless of where we stand in our lives, how much we've been abused or nurtured, how much we've been loved or hated, we all have, one, the temptation towards vice, and two, the desire for virtue. Deep down, we all know there are enormous, life-giving, wonderful, blessed benefits in doing the right thing. But we also know that is the harder road, which, of course, is why the vice is so tempting. So no, I do not in fact believe, or at least I can say with certainty, I am not sold on the idea of an old sin nature or on the idea of a gay gene. I think that we make our decisions based on weakness or based on the desire to face what is very difficult indeed. And to belabor the point just a little bit more, I've heard it said, and I think this is a really good case to be made, that the original sin of Adam and Eve was not to embrace sin or rebellion against God as such, though, of course, I think that was the outworking of it, and I think that is what we are all essentially doing. As C.S. Lewis puts it quite rightly, we are rebels against a lawful magistrate. I think that is the reality of the situation we're in. But what was actually happening is this was the, quote, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Whether or not there's a literal tree and literal fruit is a matter of much debate, and I myself don't really take a hardline view either way. But whatever the case, it's the knowledge of good and evil. And we can assume from that premise that they did not have knowledge of good or evil ahead of that. For example, or to argue the point, why would anybody have to know what good is? unless you have the context that there is something other than that. If there is no alternative, for example, to justice, why would we have to know what injustice is? If justice was all that was ever done, why would we have to speak of crime or injustice? In the same way, why would we have to speak of good unless we knew there was such a thing as evil? So, gaining the knowledge of good and evil... is primarily what Adam and Eve did. And in understanding that there is such a thing as good and evil, we then gave ourselves the capacity to try to play God. In other words, trying to define for ourselves what good and evil is. And if you look at the primary topic of this conversation, the homosexual question, you can see this writ large across that movement. What's really happening in the homosexual movement, and the most offensive part to Christians, is the fact that they're trying to be accepted as good. I myself have argued with with an adulterer who tried to justify her position. In other words, she was trying to make—and she, by the way, claimed to be a Christian, and I'm not really saying that she wasn't, but, you know, definitely brings it to question— Anyways, she was trying to say that what she was doing was just. What she was doing was okay, justifiable. In some sense, it was good. In much the same way as the homosexual community is trying to be accepted as okay, healthy, good, respectable, and all the rest of it. And even within the homosexual movement itself, the queers in particular I'm led to understand... Believe themselves not just to be okay, but to be in some extra sense even compared to other gays, etc., transcendent. In other words, that their attraction to the opposite, sorry, to the same sex, is a mere starting point. They wish to believe themselves to be some sort of extra transcendent being. This, to me, is the crux of the entire debate, in general. When the homosexual movement was really starting to get some traction, some people argued that it was only a matter of time before they were going to try to justify pedophilia itself. No, says the homosexual, furtively trying to hide the card behind their back, literally labeled pedophilia. That's what's going on today. The movement towards trying to make pedophiles themselves only seem as if they're another slightly divergent but still okay sexual desire and a natural thing in and of itself has already been taking place. I don't think I had that grammar quite straight but yes that movement is taking place this very t- at this very time. All of us have within us the desire to justify our position. I have argued in the past and I'll argue here again that the thing that we as human beings desire the most is not happiness. Yes, we desire that very much, but it's not, in my argument, the thing that we desire the most. We desire to be justified. We want to believe that whatever we happen to be doing, we are doing what is right, what is good, what is healthy. The person who has committed adultery, pedophilia, or homosexual acts, before they have started to repent, if I didn't already say that, they want to be justified. They want to believe or be believed by others to be doing what is okay and healthy and right. We will argue to the end of the live-long day to try to be justified, even at the cost of our happiness. We'll be miserable in many cases trying to argue how healthy and right we are. No, we want to be justified. And I can't help but wonder, sometimes if the Christians who have such a hard time with the homosexual movement are themselves viscerally against it in an effort to hide their own guilt. In other words, their level of rage and visceral reaction to one of many sexual perversions is really just them trying to smoke screen the guilt that they hide behind closed doors. I've talked already in the past about how many Christians will live, quote, virtuously in public, and then if you see them at home, you would be ashamed and question, perhaps, their very Christianity in general. So I personally believe that while homosexuals are merely another sort of sexual deviant as many as any others, well, sinners sin. As a Christian, I don't really have a problem with them living their lives. I disagree with it. I think that it is wrong and I think that they will pay in time just the same as thieves, as adulterers, as pedophiles, as murderers. How often do Christians put so much energy as they do against the homosexual movement also into trying to fight murder, trying to fight thieves, trying to fight adultery? The fact of the matter is, the only real difference is that the homosexual movement is far more visible. Most of these other things are still, at least to to most people, thought to be wrong, so they are hidden. We know deep down that they are wrong. But should not the church be trying to fight all sin, at least within its own doors? And again, the problem arises. Adulterers and pedophiles can be Excuse me, can be around the church but there's no outward evidence of what they're doing so it can coexist there for quite a while if we're so vehement against a particular sin while ignoring others I think the rest of the world very rightly cries hypocrisy so I think That we as Christians should have no more problem with a homosexual than we do with any other sinner. And what the homosexuals, in my opinion, need to understand is that while we may be tolerant of them in society as a whole, we certainly shouldn't be expected to say against our own beliefs that their lifestyle is certainly, is simply okay any more than you would expect us to say that an adulterer is okay. These, in our point of view, is merely a different version of sexual perversion and going against the design that God has put in place. And, just to close this off, talking specifically to the more secular world on these issues, there was once an interview done between a media person and a apologist And the question was asked, why is it that you will fight so hard against racism that you will not fight against uh, homophobia? And the answer really was quite brilliant, and it puts the Christian perspective, I think, in a very accurate light. The Christians believe, or sorry, Christians believe, regardless of, that human beings were born the way that God intended for them to be born outside of you know obvious issues such as massive defects and um crippling disabilities at birth and therefore our pursuit is consistent in the fact that on the one side we want to justify and we we want to fight for the belief that if you are black Or white or Asian, you were born the way that God wanted you to be born. In the same way, we argue that if you were born a female with a Y chromosome, or sorry, without a Y chromosome, or if you're born a male with an XY chromosome, you were born the way that God wanted you to be born. Our pursuit as Christians is for people to be able to embrace the way that the Creator made them to be in peace and contentment and delight. So, that's all I had to bring to the table today. I certainly think this one was probably quite interesting to a lot of people. I'll talk to you next time.